Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Don't Tell Me The Score, life lessons from sport and beyond. My name is Simon Mundy and this week's guest is science journalist and best-selling author James Nestor and we are discussing the art of breathing properly. Now James's best-selling book Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art is now out in paperback and it is highly recommended. This is a topic I've wanted to cover for ages It may be easy to think we all know how to breathe, but the fact is many of us breathe in a way that is simply not good for our health. The science shows that breathing through your nose is key, as is not over-breathing, which is something we are prone to doing, particularly when stressed. James has been part of some extensive research which shows the damage that mouth breathing can do, and it is pretty startling. We talk about the optimal number of breaths to take per minute, how breath work can be transformative in other ways, for example, in releasing trauma, as well as how it can have a dramatic impact on sports performance too. Now, just a heads up, I've actually been taping my mouth shut at night for these exact reasons. And before you write me off as a crank, have a listen to what James has to say on the subject. He's a mouth taper too, and for good reasons. Now, there are some really simple tweaks anyone can make after listening to this episode, which will benefit anyone's overall well-being. And I'm really excited to share this chat with you for those reasons. But before I do, thank you to everyone who's messaged recently Apologies if I haven't replied, but I promise I read every single one and they all mean a huge amount. You can get in touch and sign up for my newsletter at simonmundy.com. If you could share this episode with anyone you think might benefit from hearing it or just enjoy it, I would be incredibly grateful. Right, let's get to this week's episode. Here is the fascinating James Nestor. James Nestor, how are you? Doing pretty good. How are you? I'm good. I'm thrilled to have you on. This is a topic that I've wanted to cover for ages, 
And I don't think there is anyone better to talk about it with. Your book is fantastic. And I am a breath nut. I've alluded to it before we even started um, recording. So I've got the tape that I use to tape my mouth shut every night. I have done for probably four years. This is me coming out of the closet on the podcast. I've got the relaxator here, which is product made by someone who features in your book. So there are a few little uh, hints at the directions we're going to go in. One of the reasons I'm so excited to speak to you about breathwork, breathing, all that kind of stuff, is that you don't really have, so to speak, any skin in the game. Like you're not a breath instructor or anything. You are a science journalist. So you've approached this subject with a curious and skeptical mind, haven't you? Well, back in the day when I first started writing for magazines and newspapers, there was never a difference between being a journalist and a skeptic. These are supposed to be one and the same. You're supposed to go into these worlds, into these subjects that you know nothing about as objectively as you can and just report on them, report on what you find, not try to sway someone to think one thing over something else. It's to provide information. That's my job. But nowadays, it's getting increasingly hard to find people who want to pursue journalism in that way. It seems like many people, not everyone, of course, but has an agenda. And so I don't find that it's novel at all to be both ignorant of something and skeptical, because that's exactly what a journalist is supposed to be. You don't often know about the subjects you're going into, and then you explore them and you talk to as many people as you can. So um, I don't feel that those things really butt against each other so much. And that was my job here. Uh, Why would I want to convince people that something wasn't true? Why would I want to convince them to get into Buteyko breathing or get into Wim Hof breathing if the science wasn't there? There's no advantage to that. And it would destroy my career if, you know, I was getting some money on the back end from promoting something. So that's my take on this book and this subject. And this is how I've approached every single one of my subjects as honestly and as straightforward as I can. Well, you've done an excellent job of selling yourself as the ideal person to speak to about this subject because this is a subject I've wanted to talk about for a long time and a cliched way I could have started would have been to say why would we want to talk about breathing properly because we all do it and I think that would have worked you know a year or two back but people are increasingly aware of breath work I mean if it's not mainstream yet it's certainly getting there isn't it I think so. It's a little hard to gauge, though, because I've been so firmly rooted in that world for so many years. So I gauge it from my friends, from my mom. I figure if my mom has heard about something, then everyone on the planet has heard about it. So (laughs) she's the last in line. Love you, mom. So she starts talking about breath work and these different breathing patterns. I said, wow, I think this stuff is really broken out, which is great because it's free and it's available to everyone. And The worst thing that's going to happen to you if you do it is you're going to feel better. Mm. That is really a pretty low bar for people to have to overcome in order to start doing this. That's why I think it's a great thing to talk about and to tell people about because it's really hard to make money off of breathing, which is, I think, one of the reasons why a lot of us hadn't heard about it for so long. And you say in your book, the missing pillar in health is breath. So it's not 
something to be flippant about. The effects of this, from the research you've done, from the scientists you've spoken to, of breathing both incorrectly and in an efficient manner can be profound. Without a doubt, this is not a subjective viewpoint. This is not anecdotal. This science comes from very accurate measurements. And you can't argue with measurements. You can argue with some conclusions that people make from the measurements, but you can't argue with numbers. So I don't care what someone's political background is. I don't care what their beliefs are. If the science shows that this stuff is real, that these are the measurements and that it can be replicated, then sorry, <laughs> that's where the truth is. So it's interesting that people come with their preconceived notions of what breathwork is and what breathing can do, because so much of it has been sullied in this new age language. It's been convoluted with crystals and very sort of woo-woo stuff for so long. I'm not saying that's good or bad. If people want to write about it and think about it that way, it's not my business to judge that. But this is our most basic biological function. And of course, how we take in breath and exhale breath is going to affect us right down to the subatomic level of every cell in our bodies. This is how breathing affects us. And again, if you don't believe me, measure what happens to your heart rate, your blood pressure, your brain states, your physical endurance, your sleep after you start incorporating healthy breathing into your life. And I think you'll be amazed. I certainly was when I first started seeing this happen within myself very early on in my research. Yeah. And you've been through some pretty taxing experiments, it sounds like, from your book. And I want to talk about them. But I actually want to go back to the start, actually, how you get into this. And something I really enjoy about breath is that it's a bit of a romp, isn't it? As well as being very educational and full of good information and valuable information. But it is, it's described by lots of people, for example, as a page turner. It's one of those books. It's not some overwhelming academic treatise. So you start with this lovely story about you and your experience in a Victorian house. So can you just um, talk to me a little bit about that? First of all, what you were doing there, and then that, how that perhaps fed into how you ended up writing this book and doing the research. So years and years and years ago, I was eating all the right foods, which I still am pretty controlling about what I eat. So I still do that. I was sleeping eight hours a night. I was exercising all the time. I was surfing, doing martial arts, running, all of that. But I kept getting sick and I kept having respiratory issues. So I would get bronchitis. Sometimes that would lead into mild pneumonia. And I was wheezing. I was still healthy, right? So if you took any of my blood work, like I was a healthy person. But I couldn't understand why I kept getting worn down and why I kept having problems breathing. And every time I went to my doctor, they'd look at me and they'd say, oh, here's some antibiotics. Go home. You'll be cool in about five days. And it was. It would clear up any problems. And antibiotics are, are amazing for that, for acute symptoms. But they do nothing for the core underlying problem. So I was talking to another doctor friend and she told me, she said, well, why don't you try some breathing exercises, some breath work. And in San Francisco, you know, there's breath work on every street corner right next to it, Subway sandwiches. This stuff is all over the place, which is one of the reasons I was very apprehensive. I didn't want to be another one of those dudes 
going in with a ponytail and tie-dye talking about breath work all the time. But I signed up for this weekend class, learned this method. thought it was okay. I wasn't that convinced it was going to do anything. But then a few weeks later, might have even been a few months, I went back to do a weekly follow-up session. And at that follow-up session, it was held at this Victorian house with the classic scene, Persian rug, uh, everyone's touchy-feely, uh, shoes at the door. And I sat in the corner and just started breathing in this rhythmic pattern, right? In and out, sitting in a corner, this wintertime, cold room, and I just started sweating a sweat I've never experienced in my life by sitting in a corner, cross-legged, and breathing in this pattern. And Everyone in the class saw it and the instructor was like, whoa, what happened? I said, I don't know. My hair was sopping wet. My t-shirt was wet. There were sweat blotches on my jeans. I mean, even if I had gone and run 10 miles, I wouldn't have sweated that much. So it intrigued me, but I'm not going to write a memoir. I'm a journalist. I'm a science journalist. So I didn't know what to do with this story. I told a couple of friends about it, not too many. And one friend was in the class, so he saw it. He's just like, dude, are you all right? Do you have a fever? I said, no, I felt great. So I just filed that away in the back of my brain because it was a story that had no home, at least in the stuff that I write about. But then I met free divers, and these are people who can hold their breath. By chance? For an assignment, Outside Magazine, I worked for them for years and years. They sent me to Greece for two weeks to write about a freediving competition. I knew nothing about it. I had never seen anyone free dive. There was no free dive in Southern California when I was growing up. Water's too murky. It just blew my mind that we could do this with our breathing. We could hold our breath for eight minutes at a time, dive to 300 feet on a single breath of air. And that's where I thought, hmm, maybe there's a larger story here. And over several years, I kept digging. I didn't think there was a book in it. I thought there was a magazine story in it. But eventually, I had so many different parts and pieces. And a lot of these parts and pieces weren't adding up. So it got me even more curious. I said, why does nobody know about this stuff if it's so powerful? And then I finally put it together into a book proposal. And here we are. And what a blooming success it's been. I mean, you're on the bestseller list of pretty much every country around the world, aren't you? Pretty much. Yeah, it's such a trip. You know, you write a book <laughs> I have a shed in my backyard. It's four by seven. Seen the pig. Looks wicked. I want to get one. There there you go. (laughs) You know, you live your life in relative seclusion, creating your own world of this book. You never think about what's going to happen when you take your little baby and launch it out. And uh, it's a scary time, especially during a pandemic. The book came out six weeks after lockdown started. So they weren't even going to release it. They said, wait till next year. This is going to be a disaster. We're like, maybe people need to think about breathing now. And uh, we did. And it's just been so unexpected, so grateful, but uh, a complete trip. That's the only word I can really use to describe it. Interesting. I mean, there are lots of serendipitous moments. And I agree. I think it's a book that arrived at just the right time for a lot of people. A lot of people seem to be looking for different ways of understanding themselves of feeling better just as you did you know when you went to that victorian house and i could relate to what you were saying there when you were saying you were doing everything right so you were eating and you were exercising and etc etc but you were getting sick so i've always been relatively sporty eaten well etc etc but i used to wake up with um 
brain fog, sometimes anxiety, whatever, stuff like that. And I would do the same thing, go to the doctors. And I actually thought I had sleep apnea and I may well have done, but the doctor said to me that you only tend to have sleep apnea if you're overweight, which is not something I am or was. So Um, true, by the way, that is so false. My hunch was that, you know, because I would wake in the middle of the night gasping. Like if I was on my back, and I'm asthmatic as well, by the way, God, it's all racking up. But, um, and so I, I can't even remember how I sort of fell into exploring a bit of this stuff as well, which led to me getting into taping the mouth. It's a paradoxical intervention. I like to think of it. Correct breathing in many ways, isn't it? And I've had a recent episode about dealing with uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. And most people's propensity is to try and resist them or get rid of them, whereas actually the trick is to welcome them. And it reminds me of breathing because really what you're talking about is it's things like breathing less, not more, using our noses and this kind of stuff. So there is a lot of paradoxes, they're not, in the way of actually getting this stuff right. It's so counterintuitive. So much of it is. And that's what was so confusing to me researching and writing this book is you can get a book on pranayama and there's 400 different breathing methods. And some of them are saying, this is the best way to breathe is to overbreathe and to hold your breath. And then mm-hmm. some of them are saying, no, there's this other breathing method that you breathe very slowly and you breathe through your nose, which is right. And then you start talking to these different breathing camps, something I spent months and months doing. You talk to a lot of Buteco people And Buteyko is based on these methods developed by this Russian cardiologist in the 1950s. And they say, never take a deep breath. You only need to be taking very shallow breaths through your nose all the time. This is the key to breathing. Talk to Wim Hof. He's going to say the complete opposite. So it seemed like there were these silos of people that had understood very well one aspect of breathing, but they weren't integrating their views of breathing into the larger scientific community and what we knew about measuring breathing and what it can do for the body. So luckily, I think those groups are starting to talk now, which Mm. is great. And to understand that You know, life shouldn't be viewed through this myopic vision. Once you learn something, you have to constantly question what you've learned because science changes all the time. It's not a closed Mm -hmm. book. If it were a closed book, then we would be completely screwed. We need science to continue progressing and we need to continue learning things. So the slow breathing, the heavy breathing, what do you do with all this? It turns out they're all right. And it depends also what you're looking for, what you want out of it for asthmatics Very slow breathing through the nose has been scientifically proven to reduce the symptoms of asthma, even reverse it. Talk to Patrick McEwen about that. He'll tell you all about it. So to me, I couldn't just go down one alley. I had to talk to everybody, even though they were contradicting one another. I had to keep going back to the base, to the foundation, to what the measurements were showing us. And that's what I tried to do in this book. Clearly, you've come to a satisfying conclusion. And am I right in suggesting that as a sort of general rule, it is around breathing light, breathing slow, and we'll dig into a bit more of the detail. But then on the other side, the Wim Hoffy type stuff, that's like exercising, for example, putting your body under stress to strengthen it. 
So we want to be spending more time in the former and then occasionally dipping into the latter if that's your bag. Is that about right? That's exactly right. The beginning of the book is like, we're all completely hosed. Almost all of us are breathing incorrectly because of our anatomy, because of our culture, because of the way we're sitting, because of the foods we're eating. And the middle part is like, it doesn't matter if you're an ultra marathoner. It doesn't matter if you have COPD. It doesn't matter if you have anxiety or panic. Here is the way everybody can benefit from breathing. This is the foundation that you have to mm. build on. Then you can go off and do all this other crazy stuff. But you have to learn this foundation. And that foundation is exactly what you said. It's breathing through the nose. It's breathing slow, rhythmically, lightly, and deeply. And yeah. this is something Patrick McEwen uh, mentions all the time. And that's how we should be breathing the majority of the day and throughout the night. We should be breathing in that pattern. What's his mantra? Breathe light to breathe right, I think, isn't it? And, and we'll dig into that. But something that you talk about a lot is um, breath work and an appreciation of the power of breath might be making a belated resurgence. but an appreciation of the power of it in various ways is really baked into human history. And it was being dismissed in recent years until this resurgence. But can you just give me a quick potted history and perhaps throw in how our face structures have changed and how that relates? So this is my favorite part of doing research is looking into ancient history and seeing what our ancestors knew and seeing what we can measure today to prove how right they were. And it turns out that they were right about so much. Again, this isn't my opinion. This is the data that we get from modern equipment that can actually measure what's happening in the body. And breathing, we've been writing about this dating back 5,000 years to the Indus civilization, which was in northern India, the borders of India and Pakistan and Afghanistan, there are figurines of people assuming postures in which they are consciously breathing. Uh, these are the first yogic postures. And so if they were putting these on clay tablets, they had probably known about it for thousands of years before that. And maybe a couple thousand years after that, the ancient Chinese were writing all about the wonders of breathing, all the good things it can do if you do it right, and all the bad things that are going to happen if you do it wrong. There's one quote I mentioned in the book, therefore, the scholar who nourishes his life refines the form and nourishes his breath. Isn't mm. it evident? <laughs> you know, that's 2000 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> and, you know, there, there's specific directions on how to breathe in these books. They say, do not breathe through the mouth. Never mm. inhale breath through the mouth. It's poisonous. It will destroy your health. We now have science to show that that is so true. I'm not talking about occasional breaths through the mouth, okay? I want to be very clear. You and I are breathing through the mouth right now. We're talking. When you laugh, you're breathing through the mouth. I'm talking about as a habit. Throughout the day, throughout the mouth, throughout the night, breathing through the mouth is going to injure your body. It just is, and we know that. So it's been great to see how in all of these parallel cultures, 
which may not have even had contact with one another. They had all developed a system of breathing and they respected breathing as a medicine. And again, nowadays we can test these claims, which is what we've been doing for decades in finding out what a huge difference changing your breathing will make to your health, your mental health and your physical health. Scientists were dismissive of breath as a medicine until pretty recently, weren't they? Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. So like I've said to you, been taping my mouth shut and a friend of mine, she said that she was getting sleep apnea or something like that. You know, she was similar to me. The things that she were experiencing were familiar to me, whether it was brain fog or waking up in the night, you know, not feeling refreshed, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, and she'd gone to see a doctor and I said, oh, you, you should tell him that you should give it a try of taping your mouth shut at night. It's made a world of difference to me. So she went to this doctor. This, I would say this was two, three years ago now. And she came back and she said, oh, the doctor said that you're an idiot. And you can understand why, right? That taping your mouth shut at night does paint a bit of a picture. And I know, you know, when I brought it up a few years ago, but even that, now, now even that is sort of entering the mainstream. But I just find it interesting how these kind of ancient traditions, ancient practices have been so easily dismissed and then they come back and it's like, actually, there was something in there all along. It does make me think, side, slight sidetrack, how much else of, of the ancient wisdom will science end up catching up on? As far as doctors being ignorant of, of certain things, having blind spots, we all have blind spots. It's just that a doctor who has learned something 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and has continued to practice it doesn't want to be told by a patient that maybe there's another way of doing this that's more constructive. And all you have to do to look for a parallel is just look at nutrition. So we calculated nutrition with calories, right? And for so long, we were fed foods, processed grains, which we knew 100 years ago were very bad for our bodies. They could cause all kinds of problems. And yet we were force fed this stuff by doctors who said, eat your Wheaties, eat more bread. You need four servings of bread a day. <laughs> eat more pasta. Pasta's great. Eat more uh, white rice. That's good. We know that that is so false now. The cat's out of the bag with that. Those foods are terrible. Highly processed grains are terrible for us. And yet, this is what we were fed for so long because it's like, hey, eat your 2,000 calories, you're fine. You want to lose weight? Reduce the calories. Then why is it that someone can eat 4,000 calories of fat and protein and lose weight? And we know this to be true. So nutrition has taken a complete 180 degree turn. And so much of what we've been told, we have learned, is totally false. And you would be hard-pressed to find someone who could argue with that now. Breathing has fallen through the cracks. So my father-in-law is a pulmonologist, He's a renowned pulmonologist, been studying the lungs and lung function for 40 years, right? When I came to him and said, what's the proper breaths per minute? Like, should we breathe light or deep? He said, I have no idea. I never studied that stuff. I'm dealing with people who were in car accidents 
or who have chronic lung inflammation. He said, I basically deal with the walking dead. I get them so that they're breathing. I don't care how they're breathing. When you can't breathe, you come to me. And if you think about it that way, that's how so much of the medical system is set up. They're dealing with emergencies because that's the only thing they have capacity for. Doctors are more frustrated about this than anybody. I mean, patients are pretty frustrated, but doctors want to help people. They don't have the capacity to do it. So a doctor who would say something like that without ever looking at the science, I'm not going to say it's surprising. It's quite typical, but it's not scientific at all. A true scientist would say, where are the measurements? Where are the studies? Oh, that's interesting. What could this possibly do? Just poo-pooing it without knowing anything about it, it's not doing anyone any favors. And it's, it's ironic that I could have put him on a call with Dr. Noah Siegel, the director of sleep medicine at Harvard University, who has his patients tape their mouths. So it just depends who you go and who you talk to. That's what I try to tell her, that I was on to, you know, this three years too late, you're telling me this, James. So let's talk then about the dangers of, for example, breathing through your mouth. So in breath, you and Anders Olsen plugged your noses up for a significant length of time to see the impact that breathing through your mouth would have on your health. And it was significant, right? Absolutely. We knew it was not going to be fun, but we didn't know it was going to be so dramatic and it was going to come on so quickly. So the study, which was through Stanford University, it was an experiment. We had to pay for it ourselves because the chief of rhinology research at Stanford couldn't find funding for this. What a lot of people don't realize is the vast majority of studies are funded by pharmaceutical companies or by private interest. So when you start studying breathing, you got to find that money from somewhere. And in this case, if we wanted to do this study, we had to pay for it. And at Stanford, it was incredibly expensive. And Anders had the wherewithal to travel from Sweden on his own dime to live out here in San Francisco for a month to plug his nose and to get, you know, jabbed with needles numerous times and to be put through hell because he was curious. He said, I've been talking about the benefits of nasal breathing. I want to put my money where my mouth is, so to speak. And uh, he came out here and joined me. I was so grateful for that because an experiment with two people is so much more valuable than having just one person. So the experiment was set up for 10 days. Our noses were obstructed. We could not breathe any air at all out of our noses. Sometimes it was cotton with a big piece of tape. Oftentimes it was silicone plugs <laughs> up there. And one of the worst parts is our noses start getting so chapped because of the constant tape. So once we stuck stuff up there, we wouldn't want to move it for a few days, but then it would get pretty, I won't paint that picture, but it would get pretty gnarly. So we <laughs> hold our breath and remove the cotton and put the uh, silicone up there. And we had clamps, we had all, all kinds of different stuff, depending on what we were doing. For 10 days, this was the plan. And a lot of people, a lot of my friends were just like, oh, this is so stupid. It's like supersize me. Why are you doing this? I thought you were like a professional journalist. But what they didn't realize is so much of the population has chronic obstruction of the nose. 50% of us have inflamed turbinates. How many people have chronic sinusitis, uh, 12%, 15% of the population. Mm -hmm. So we were lulling ourselves into a position that so much of the population already understood. The difference is we were measuring it three times a day, what was happening to our body, measuring it all night. 
I know that you were both snoring your way through the night and gasping and all sorts of sounds were coming out that were pretty horrific to the pair of you. And it was a real drop off in terms of your base point, both of you. So neither of us snored or had sleep apnea before. We took about two weeks of baseline data. The very night we obstructed our noses, we started snoring. And within a few days, I was snoring for more than half the night. So about four hours throughout the night, we start choking on ourselves with sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. People say, Mm -hmm. oh, you have to be overweight to have sleep apnea. Oh, you have to be overweight to have snoring. No one's looking at the pathway through which we breathe air and how that affects and influences our snoring and sleep apnea. We did not prove anything with this experiment. I want to be very clear about this. We were just supporting what science already knew. So when allergy season boots up, guess what happens? People start snoring and suffering from sleep apnea at a significantly increased rate. Guess what happens when people learn to breathe out of their noses instead of breathing out of their mouths at night? Their snoring can go down significantly, even disappear the same with mild or even moderate sleep apnea. So Mm -hmm. I'm not saying this is going to work for everyone. We have obstruction issues throughout the airway. People who have tongue collapse, they're not going to benefit from only breathing through the nose all the time, right? But what I like about this trick is it's freely available for anyone to experiment with. And you can record yourself throughout the night with this free app that will show you if you're improving. You can also wear a pulse oximeter or an aura ring. And I've heard from thousands and thousands of people this simple trick has changed their lives and they're so pissed off that it took so long for them to learn about it, you know? I'm definitely one of those people. Like I said, I was seeking answers I couldn't understand. I think the brain fog was the most frustrating thing, you know, turning up to work and feeling like you're grabbing for thoughts that just are refusing to pop up. So this is how I do it, right? Listen, so you can hear the tape, okay? And my wife, by the way, has got a picture of me wearing this with an eye mask and it's a horrific photo okay but i might post it just to prove it so i go full because i know you don't go full. i go full all right i'm in in for a penny in for a pound james here we go so i'll take that off that is what i do last thing at night i put tape across my mouth and have done for four years i would say three four years it's almost become like a sleep ritual, I think. I think it's like a trigger to my brain now to go to sleep as well. The first week, it was a bit tricky. I was not used to it. That's very normal. But I would say it was a maximum of a week. And then I just suddenly noticed I was waking up feeling fresh. Simple as that. And ever since then, I don't think I've woken up with brain fog once since I have started taping my mouth shut at night. And... <laughs> I start to panic when I run out. I'm sure you know the feeling, James, right? I've always <laughs> I always have about four on the go. But yeah, it's absolutely transformed how I feel when I wake up in the morning, my quality of my sleep, everything like that. So can you just talk to me about your experience and some of the science behind taping your mouth shut at night, which is definitely becoming a thing? So since we did the experiment, I had talked to various researchers at Stanford who had been suspecting that mouth breathing at night was causing neurological issues, brain fog, even disrupting some metabolic functions. 
Sorry, can I just interrupt? You don't mean like digestion or anything like that, do you? Sure, sure. I mean digestion. Really? That's interesting. Absolutely. But it's hard to find funding for this stuff. So I walked down the hall from the chief of rhinology research's office. This guy's top of his field, right? And I walked down the hall and talked to a breathing therapist. She was a speech language pathologist at Stanford. And she had a big roll of blue tape on her desk. And I would start talking to her and she's like, I prescribed this to every one of my patients. And I have been for five or six years. So since that study has happened, I've stayed in contact with her. She is booting up a study with 200 people with sleep apnea and snoring, a two-year-long study looking at sleep tape and what it does, what it doesn't do. And this is what the scientific community needs. They need a trial and they need measurements to start being prescribed to people. That sounds like such a weird term to prescribe a piece of tape. But in order for people not to say, my doctor says, you're an idiot. Uh, You don't know what you're doing. This is dangerous. I'm going to die if I tape my mouth. It doesn't have to be that way. And I've found that what works for me is different from what works for you. But the method I found was the most effective was I take that size tape i have a beard nice little very light adhesive on this tape this is not duct right. tape this is the technology everybody get ready i can still talk to you right okay yeah. i can still cough <clears throat> out of the side of my mouth comes right off that's what it's supposed to do you don't want to struggle to get this off it just comes right off it's just to train my mouth when my muscles loosen i go to bed that's what happens So I wasn't snoring, I didn't have sleep apnea, but I was a mouth breather every single night because I would go to sleep with this right next to me, Mm -hmm. a huge thing of water, I'd hit off of it all night. Yet did I know that 100 years ago, dentists were saying mouth breathing causes cavities. And today, a few dentists are saying it's the number one cause of cavities over sugar consumption. So there's no reason to breathe through your mouth during the night and about 60% of the population does. Sleep tape is a great way around that. I'm going to throw in one caveat because I got a little blowback. If you have chronic obstruction issues, severely deviated septum, if you cannot breathe through your nose, don't tape your mouth, okay? Use common sense. That's it. That's sleep tape. And I never thought I'd be comparing sleep taping method with (laughs) anyone, so thank you for that. No, it's a pleasure. And we've got different techniques, you know, because I've tried yours and then I find myself sort of breathing out of the side in the middle of the night. It doesn't work for me. I need full bang. This mouth is not getting opened by hook or by crook until someone wrenches this off me first thing in the morning. And you said common sense. And if I ever said to someone, it'd be like, just get used to wearing it for half an hour in the day. If you're working at the computer, you're not in a social environment necessarily. Stick on a bit of tape just to get used to that feeling of having your mouth shut. And you said about um, obstruction as well. So I I broke my nose twice, once playing rugby, once falling face first onto a bar, but that's another story. So it it was definitely a bit deviated. But a weird thing I always noticed, if I felt on the bridge of my nose, it was, let's say, a bit inflamed or you're a bit bunged up. As soon as I put the tape on, just weirdly, within 10 seconds, it would clear itself up, like without fail. What's going on there? Do you know? <laughs> so I, I actually do. Yes. So that same doctor I had talked to, Dr. Ann Kearney, 
She was curious about this as well because she had chronic obstruction her whole life and she was slated for nasal surgery. So she thought, she's like, hmm, do I really need surgery? And the surgeon said, you absolutely need surgery. But she's a scientist. She's a researcher. So she started looking at x-rays of people who had laryngectomies, a little hole drilled in their throat. And she noticed that between two months and two years, their noses were 100% obstructed. They completely closed in. So she thought, she's like, I bet the nose is a use it or lose it organ. The less you use it, the more it's going to be closed. So if you have constant obstruction, the nose is just going to keep closing and closing and closing and closing. So that's where she had the idea. She said, I'm only going to breathe through my nose for a couple of weeks and see what happens. Because the nose isn't just bones, right? It's tissues that can engorge with blood to close up Mm. and then they can become flaccid and open up. And our noses Mm. do this constantly. Mm. So by conditioning the nose, to accept more air more often, she completely opened her nose, needed no surgery at all, which is what got her thinking. She's like, wow, how many other people can do this? Before rushing into surgery, why not see what your natural body can adapt to? And it starts with breathing through your nose. There's no bad side effects to breathing through your nose, especially at night. There are so many benefits, more oxygen, more calm, more parasympathetic response. I mean, it goes mm. on and on and on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the no, depth of sleep is just unparalleled. Yeah, and that the quality of sleep. People with aura rings or with other sleep trackers now, they're having transformations just by breathing through their nose. And you can see it in the data, which to me is what's so exciting. So where is the science on this exactly, like on taping your mouth? And where is the general doctor's view of things, do you think? We've had the science for more than 50 years. And the science was conducted by Dr. Christian Guimano at Stanford University, who is considered the godfather of sleep medicine. He's basically (laughs) the guy who started it. And you can go back and look at some of his 300 scientific papers where he has said there is a direct connection between mouth breathing and developmental problems in the face, in the brain, in the rest of the body. When you're stressing your body out throughout the night, you are jacking your cortisol, your adrenaline, and in the presence of cortisol, bones aren't going to grow. So your sleep quality affects how tall you could be. Okay. This is all documented science. And He had been saying this in these scientific journals for so long. No one's arguing with him, right? It's just no one was really listening to him. So, so much of his work is now being accepted in the mainstream. I don't consider Harvard and Stanford to be fringe institutions. I figure if these institutions are studying this stuff and taking it seriously, then maybe the rest of us should be listening to what's going on here. And several books have been published out of Stanford University Press saying the same exact thing. So the science is rock solid. You will greatly benefit from breathing through your nose while you're sleeping and during the day most of the time, even while working out. There are some levels at extreme exercise you might benefit from (sighs) resetting with a few big mouth breaths. No problem at all. We have a mouth. You can use it for that. But For habitual breathing, nasal breathing is key. And I'm more convinced now than I ever was before that you can never, ever really be healthy 
if you are a habitual mouth breather. I really believe that. No matter what, if you're paleo or keto or vegan or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I'm no medical expert, but I anecdotally would tend to agree with you. But yeah, I mean, what a powerful statement. And actually, do you know what? Something you said about allergies. So I had um, hay fever. I'd always get it early in the season. And the last three years, nothing, nothing, right? I put it down to the fact that I started brewing kefir, got into my probiotics, right? So that's what I've been pimping around. And then I read your book and it's like, it made me think, no, it, it could exactly be this. It's the mouth taping at night. That could be why my hay fever has stopped. We will never know. You weren't doing measurements. <laughs> uh, there aren't two versions of you where we could feed one probiotics and the other, we would be mouth taping. If there were, that would be amazing for so many reasons beyond just the It science. could be. It could be. But That's I, what I we know. I right? don't think it's a coincidence that Patrick McEwen has been training tens of thousands of people for 20 years to either reduce their hay fever or just get rid of it entirely. He had terrible allergies, terrible asthma, mm -hmm. now zero. So that's not a coincidence. And the people that he's training, these are people eating all kinds of different foods, right? He's not controlling mm -hmm. their food. He's controlling their breath. We get most of our energy from breath, not food. And that's something so many people get wrong. And if you don't believe me, try not breathing for a couple of minutes. See how you're doing, how much yeah, energy yeah. you have. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So back in the day, is it fair to say, basically, Homo sapiens had strong chins, good, straight teeth. There was no need for braces or anything like that. And then all of a sudden, that started to fragment and then really accelerated. And I know in the book, you talk about tribes now who are aware of the power of the breath, who will shut their children's mouths from very early on from like baby as soon as it's open they'll gently shut them so 
as far as you know, what does the science tell us about the link between breathing and, and the shape of our face and our teeth? So this is something I heard about right when I was first really digging into the book, when it was a full-time job for me. I got the book contract and I was out in the field just studying this stuff every single day. And a biological anthropologist told me, he said, oh, we're all messed up. We can't breathe because our faces have changed. I said, oh, why would evolution do that? What's the evolutionary advantage to that? Survival of the fittest, right? And he started cracking up. He's like, that is not at all how evolution works. And then started explaining to me that evolution means change. It doesn't mean progress because is it an evolutionary advantage for 60% of Americans to be overweight and 40% to be obese, for 15% to have diabetes, for 10% to have asthma, these things that our ancestors never had? So what he explained, our ancestors all had these pronathic faces. So they had mouths that came out and they were very wide. With a larger mouth, you have a larger airway. Very easy. All of their teeth fit perfectly. No need for wisdom teeth extractions. What a weird thing. What other animal has to go to the mm. dentist to get like teeth removed? And this all really started booting up around 300 years ago with the advent of industrialized foods. No controversy about this. You can see the exact moment in time where our mouths got small, our teeth got crowded, and as a consequence of that, our breathing went to hell. And so you can see in the skeletal record, if you don't believe me, look at ancient skulls, they all have perfect teeth. And mm. then look in the mirror. And if you're like 90% of us, you have crooked teeth, or you've had teeth removed, or you've had braces, or you've had headgear, any of that. Well, actually, I mean, the Brits are known for it, right? I mean, that seems to be the American image of British people is bad teeth. I'm recalling a Simpsons episode where I think Prince Charles got it. Well, who was one of the first societies to really adopt this industrialized diet? You don't tell me it's our fault again, isn't it? It's the, our fault again. The <laughs> Dickensian street urchin, you know, with the crooked teeth, spare top end, you know, <laughs> that kid a hundred years before that had perfectly straight teeth. Oh man! So More guilt. We we, well, we took, yeah we, we shipped it out your way to the new world and destroyed <laughs> the native population. What do you there think? We eating buffalo <laughs> it's bread, man. Oh, yeah. actually, that reminds me. I want to talk to you about that. Don't let me get you off without the whole chewing, masticating thing, right? But so we've really covered that whole the importance of nose breathing. If one person listening was going to take away one thing, it's breathe through your nose as much as possible. Is that the most important thing? It's so disappointingly simple and unsexy, but it's true. Any healthy breathing starts with nasal breathing, period. Because this whole thing about breathing slow and rhythmically and light and deep, it's really hard not to do that when you're breathing through your nose. Your nose controls the airflow. It slows things down. It pressurizes it. And with those slower breaths, we take deeper breaths and lighter breaths. So in my opinion, I think Patrick McEwen and Anders would agree with me and other researchers would agree that just nasal breathing, you're about 70% there to healthy breathing if you were just to adopt habitual nasal breathing. And we'll talk about that relative to sport as well, because I know that's an interesting area. But I want to talk quickly about overbreathing. Now, I'm an asthmatic. And I know that feeling of struggling for air and the natural impulse is to 
you know, try and get more in. But paradoxically, not necessarily with an asthma attack, okay, because obviously if I was feeling wheezy more so back in the day, that's when you go for your inhaler, okay? But generally speaking, actually it is the paradox. We want to be, correct me if I'm wrong, getting a bit less air. It's about breathing less, not more. It's about breathing less relative to how you were breathing before. It's what it really is, is breathing normally, which for the majority of us is breathing less. And for the vast majority of asthmatics and panic and anxiety sufferers, it's breathing way less. So we know yeah. that asthmatics overbreathe. They can breathe even up to 50 to 70% more than they need to. And a lot of asthmatics have developed this overbreathing because they're so nervous about losing that ability to breathe that they enter this default mode, their brains do, of just, <sighs> if you're breathing like this, you're constantly getting air. The moment you lose that ability to breathe, it triggers this fright of having an attack. And so you get in this negative feedback loop of overbreathing to prevent an attack but it turns out that God has a sense of humor because that overbreathing is what actually triggers asthma attacks quite often. Is that mm -hmm. constant overbreathing causes this vasoconstriction and it inhibits you from getting proper airflow. Everything clamps up, you have an attack. Same thing with asthma. And you talk a lot about inflammation and the parasympathetic and the rest and digest, those two branches of our nervous system. We know that we're in rest and digest when we're relaxed, when we feel calm and at ease. And when we're stressed, as so many of us are, because of the diffuse, subtle, but non-life-threatening stresses that proliferate modern life, we can easily live in that state of a high arousal, which then leads to inflammation, which feeds back into that feedback loop, right? That's exactly right. So the stress that so many of us carry around with us now is this lower grade stress, but we just carry it around with us all day. It's great for the body to be stressed on occasion, which is why mm. something like Wim Hof breathing or Sudarshan Kriya or other pranayamas that are 20 minutes long and you just absolutely go for it, they stress your body out specifically so that the other times of the day, the other 23 and a half hours of the day, you're relaxed. Mm. So you don't have to have a blowout like that. You can just be relaxed throughout the day. And almost every modern disease is tied to this chronic low-grade stress, which causes chronic inflammation. If you look at the vast majority of diseases, they're diseases of inflammation from heart disease to diabetes to hypertension and more. Your breathing affects your stress levels. It is the quickest way you can adjust your stress levels. So if you're breathing calmly through the nose, even if you're having a stressful day, you're gonna keep your body more in that rest and relaxation state, which is how we are evolved to be. We are not evolved to be in semi-alert, the entire day and it's totally destroying us. And I just want to be clear that this is not some sort of James Nestor hypothesis. This is what every single medical doctor I talked to told me that these are diseases of civilization we're suffering from and they were diseases of chronic low-grade stress. Wow. So in terms of then 
dealing with that stress. So I interviewed Andy Puddicombe, who set up Headspace. Mm-hmm. He came clean and he said, when I started out, I thought if you were meditating for less than an hour, it was a waste of time. But then they did some research and they found out that 10 minutes of meditation enables you to get into rest and digest. Now, I'm someone who's been a pretty consistent meditator for a few years. Mindfulness meditation, mindfulness of breath being that one. And I know I've heard you talk about it. A part of that could simply be by putting your attention on your breath. You don't even have to control it. It naturally sort of goes into that slower, more rhythmic, more diaphragmatic breathing. And it could be as simple as that. That is the reason that we're getting the benefits from it. The vast majority of benefits that we get when we first start meditation come from the breathing that accompanies meditation. I don't know any meditation where you can just go, I'm looking at Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) The first thing they do is like you to slow down now and focus on your breath. Or you do a chant, right? Oh, money, pad me home. Satanama. Om. (laughs) They all make you immediately slow down and control your breathing in the same way. So we know that there are huge benefits to meditation. If you're very advanced at doing this, you can grow gray area of the brain. You can control other autonomic functions of your body. That's known stuff. But at the beginning, my feeling, because I don't know if this has been precisely studied, is 95% of those benefits are from sitting down and breathing in a particular pattern. I love the Mm. idea of focus, but someone needs to do a study where they take first-time meditators, first-time breathwork people for two or three weeks. The breathwork people can think about whatever they want to think about, breathe a certain way. The meditators can think about this, you know, focusing on their heart or their chakras, whatever, breathe the same way. My hunch is the benefits are going to be extremely similar across those two groups. I think that would be a fantastic experiment. I hope someone takes that on and my hunch is is similar. So look, we've ticked off the nose breathing. So that's rule number one, right? Up to you whether you want to tape your mouth at night. Like I said, you know, I go full hostage. James goes Charlie Chaplin. I'm sure the loves of our life, they're down with it. People get used to it pretty quick. You get used to it pretty quick. So we know, okay, so that's ticked off. But the next one then is this over-breathing. If you're watching television and you're relaxed, you're not going to be going, (sighs) you're not, right? But if you are stressed at work, then you're either going to be doing that or, and I've heard you talk about this, which is definitely something I've done, you sort of go, and then, and hold your breath, right? So can you just talk to me a bit about, the magic number is 5.5, and it's got this beautiful symmetry that you've got in the book. It's related to the rosary, uh, beads, and it's like one of those magic numbers, isn't it? But how many breaths a minute people tend to get, where they would should try and get to, and yeah, a bit about this golden number. So that number is just a gauge. For some people, it might feel too long. For some people who are taller, have larger lungs, they should actually breathe less than that, closer to three times a minute. But I was just providing a very general starting point for everyone, and you can build and flower off that in any way you want. So as a general rule of thumb, everyone will get 
certain benefits from breathing at this slow pace. And it turns out five and a half breaths per minute works out to just about a five and a half second inhale followed by a five and a half second exhale. And you just breathe this way. You don't push it. When I've told people about this breathing before, you know, sometimes it'd be like turbo gym dude would just be like, yeah, <laughs> like I really feel it. So this is stuff you should take very lightly. You should relax. Go turbo with your other crap you're doing, right? Um, with your with your pills and powders and, and weights. That's the time to go. Your breath should feel effortless, okay? It mm. should be almost imperceptible. So yeah. you can try this breathing in about five to six seconds, out five to six seconds. Don't worry if you have a second off. Nobody's looking at you. Look what happens to your heart rate variability. Look what happens to your blood pressure. Look at how you feel. This has been measured in various studies for decades now. And it's just a quick and easy trick that you have in your back pocket at any time. And if you're able to breathe this way throughout the day, that's great. There's no such thing as having too much peak efficiency. But I've found it's most helpful when your breathing starts going to hell, which for me is when I sit down and look at my computer in the morning, there's 40 emails, everyone needs your attention. I'm just like, ugh. How do I get out of this? And then I stop breathing, okay? I know this because I wore pulse oximeters for, for weeks and my breathing throughout the day was horrendous. This is when you want to really breathe in a soft and easy rhythm so that your brain can function properly. Your body gets the proper circulation and energy. And it's free and available for everyone all the time, whether you're watching Netflix or sitting on a plane or walking around. I try to breathe in this slow rhythmic pattern as often as I can. Yeah, I, I've tried this a few times throughout my life. I tend to be one of these, dive in and go a bit OTT, done a bit of potato, read Patrick's stuff and you know would walk and hold my breath for long periods of time and, and that kind of stuff. So I sort of came out of it. But then when I reread your book, actually I, I did some burpees and, and was doing it like holding my nose Um and it's hard, right? I suppose it's a bit like taping your mouth at night in that it just takes a bit of getting used to. But for me, breathing slowly, consistently, that is almost more challenging for me than taping my mouth at night. I will find myself, you know, I'll do it for a bit and then oh, I'll be like that, that big sigh. And then I haven't stuck with it long enough. So how long would you say, or in your experience, to acclimatize? Everybody's different. So there's no prescription. Some people will allow this to become a habit in a number of weeks. Other people can take months. You know, if you've been doing something for decades and decades, it can take a long time to break that habit. The point of breathing in this way and forcing yourself to breathe this way at the beginning is specifically so you don't have to think about it in the future. I don't want to be the guy walking around with a notepad and a watch and a pulse oximeter, constantly gauging my breath. I did it. It's not very much fun. What I want to do is figure out the best breathing for me in different situations, acclimate my body to it so that my body will naturally want to breathe in these ways. But a lot of that has to do with CO2 tolerance. So that need to breathe is dictated not by oxygen, but by carbon dioxide. So the more tolerant you get of CO2, the more comfortable, the slower you'll breathe, the more comfortable you'll get. And there are so many benefits to having that higher CO2 tolerance 
and the slower and fluid breaths that come with that. Well, this feels like a good opportunity to yeah bust some CO2 myths quickly because you know it has got a bad rap. We know that it's considered to be a destructive gas in many forms, but actually it's not entirely warranted, is it? Not at all. When you think about CO2 in the environment and climate change, I don't care who you are. If you've actually read the science, there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere right now. Humans have created this and it's causing mass damage across the globe. Just look at the oceans, okay? Those are the facts. It's been measured. That's the data. But a lot of people have assumed that CO2, because it's bad in the environment, it's bad in our bodies. But our bodies have way more CO2 in them than uh, oxygen. And so to have this balance of CO2 and oxygen, that's where health comes from. You don't want to just keep breathing too much. When you do that, you offload too much CO2. Take 20 big, deep breaths right now. You're going to feel lightness in your head. You'll, you'll feel your fingers tingling. That's not from an increase of O2, but a decrease of carbon dioxide. So you need carbon dioxide. You need a balance. So it's not about everyone go heavy CO2, everyone go heavy oxygen. The body wants a balance. That's how it works. And to get that balance, most of us need to breathe more slowly. So it's about acclimatizing a little bit and not being as sensitive to the CO2. That's exactly right. And there's been a few studies, I wish there were more, looking at athletic performance and CO2 tolerance. And people who can tolerate more CO2 generally tend to outperform others who can't. And as a few case studies that Patrick McEwen and Brian McKenzie have shown, uh, actually hundreds of case studies for those guys, when you start breathing through the nose, when you start breathing less, which is normal breathing, your body gets more oxygen more easily. If you're an athlete, you're all about performing at peak efficiency. Why would you want to overdo something when you don't need to? That's what breathing allows us to do. And we've got 10 pounds of muscles that control our breathing. We're working out every other part of our body imaginable, but we're not looking at the muscles which provide us with air, which provides us with energy. So the latest, greatest thing in athletics right now, and I'm seeing this just pop up everywhere, is breath training. It's the very first thing that trainers are doing right now, from Laird Hamilton to Patrick to Brian. And they say, you would not believe what a difference this makes performance. So much more than anything else. Because of course it does, if you look at our physiology. Sanya Richards-Ross, wasn't it? So she was the one who stood out. So what, 400-meter runner. Uh, I've read a few things about her crossing the line with her mouth shut and still apparently with energy to burn and having won the race whilst her competitors are sort of staggering over the line, mouths open as you would imagine them to be. So she was a bit of ahead of the curve. So, But what you're saying is now that the rest of sport is starting to catch up to what could be a, a really significant and legal performance enhancer. We've known about it for decades. Dr. Alison McConnell, who was working in London, she has an entire book on this, it's a big fat 300 page book, just filled with studies and data showing what happens when we start retraining our breathing, showing what happens to performance, time trials and recovery. 
So it's nothing new, but it's just been sort of buried because, you know, humans love the latest and greatest technological tweak that will allow us the shortcut into this thing. Oh, it's really this goo. So if you have a little squirt of this goo before the race, you're going to destroy everybody. We've learned that that's just false. You have to show up and do the work and you have to do the breath work, so to speak, if you really want to function at peak levels. And it's funny now watching sports, especially basketball. I watch a lot of basketball. So many of these guys are just, (sighs) and then they're out. They're out of the game in a couple of minutes. And I'm just waiting Till they get, you know, Patrick on the line or Brian on the line or or Alice McConnell on the line. And it's going to dramatically affect their game. And I think we're going to start seeing this in the next couple of years. And in fact, I'm, I'm sure of it because those guys, even a 0.5% increase over your competitor, that's solid gold, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so why wouldn't you want to increase your, your endurance in the double digits and your recovery by the double digits? It makes perfect sense to me. So it's about efficiency, right? I've heard someone talk in another interview about they notice the difference just simply walking up the stairs between having their mouth open or breathing through their nose and how they felt that it wasn't as tiring. So there's that. But so if someone wanted to improve their efficiency in this area, how would you encourage them to start implementing stuff that is not going to leave them splattered in the uh, some bush next to the side of the road next time they go out for a jog. How do you gently get your way into this from an exercise point of view? I make no guarantees about people self-plastering <laughs> on the side of the road. So just to be very clear, right, that okay. just comes with the territory, my friends. So <laughs> I, would, I would have to say the first thing I would ask people to do is to consider that you have two big gas tanks in your body, right? They're your lungs. They're right here. The larger gas tanks you have, the longer you can go before you fill up. There's a lot of arguments that females, the reason why they can't quite perform at the same level of endurance as males is because females naturally have smaller lungs, you know, about 20% smaller than the males do. I also heard from one researcher, he said, that's why it's harder for females to lose weight. You need oxygen to lose weight. And if your lungs are too small, if you're not breathing enough, it's harder to lose weight, which is very interesting. That hasn't been proven, just to be clear. That was his hypothesis. So we know that the benefits of having a larger gas tank in a car are huge. You can drive further before you have to stop and fill up. It's the same thing happening in your own body. The great thing is about the lungs is they are malleable. It's not just, oh, I'm born with this. Oh, I have small lungs in my family. It doesn't make any sense. Your lung capacity can change by force of will. And you can do this by stretching and by breathing. What is yoga? But more than a technology of learning how to make your intercostals more flexible, your rib cage more flexible, so that you can more effortlessly take a big breath of air. So if you are able to perform at peak levels while breathing more slowly, while breathing less, your heart rate's going to be lower. You're going to be burning less energy, which means you're going to have more energy than your competitor when you enter zone five or upper levels of zone four. So there isn't a lot of controversy about this, but it's been fascinating to learn that breath training was a huge part of Olympic training in the 50s and 60s, and it paid huge dividends to these athletes. 
And it took 40 years for us to forget about it, just like it took 100 years for us to forget about eating healthy whole foods as a way to get proper nutrition. And now it's just all coming back again, you know, new science of a lost art. These loops, I didn't look for them. I'm they just you. kept coming in every piece of research that I was exploring. Absolutely. Yes. And that reminded me, like I said, before we move on to the final thing I want to ask you, you mentioned there about good nutritious foods rather than the processed stuff that we all got into over previous decades. You know, it's going out of fashion, thankfully. But it's fascinating what you talk about in terms of mastication, in terms of chewing. Can you just talk about this and the importance of hard food and how this affects your face shape? And then perhaps as well, I mean, the face shape thing from a parent point of view, remember Patrick telling me this, you know, if you've got a child who's a mouth breather, there is a risk that the shape of their face could be quite significantly impacted. What's your take on that? But then how that also relates to eating proper food, eating hard food and chewing properly. 40% of your facial development is determined by epigenetics, is determined by the environment. So genes play a large part in how you look, obviously how your face is going to develop, about 60%. So about 40, and it could even go up to 50, is determined by how you happen to use that face once you're out of the gate, right? Once you're an infant. And again, this stuff is not controversial. We've known it for a long time that Kids who have been breastfed versus those who have been bottle fed will have lower incidences of snoring and sleep apnea later on in life. They will have a different profile. They will likely have a wider mouth and straighter teeth because breastfeeding causes a bunch of masticatory stress. It pushes the face out. When the bones are extremely malleable, if a kid's face is getting pulled out every two hours when he's feeding, the face is going to tend to have more of a pronathic profile, will have a larger mouth. There's been studies that have shown that after breastfeeding, when kids are weaned onto hard foods, when they're forced to chew, really chew instead of giving applesauce, you know, on, on silicon spoons, they will develop better development in their faces and in their mouths, which will lead to larger airways. And a lot of people may be thinking, well, how could you ever do a clinical trial of this how could you ever really prove this look at our ancestors they were all breastfed for more than two years sometimes up to four years and they were weaned not onto soft processed crap but to adult food because there was not soft processed crap for the first million and a half years of homo sapien evolution it didn't exist why did they all have perfectly straight teeth and these extremely broad faces. So once you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, I found it was fascinating. And then I went on to the National Institutes of Health website. I was like, I wonder what, what they think of all of this. Why do we have crooked teeth? And they said it was all genetic or caused by tumors. This is where we're getting all the science, even though the proof is it's so clear that it's masticatory chewing stress and oral posture. So it's so common, it's called adenoid face. That's what researchers call it. When adenoids or tonsils get inflamed, kids have to breathe through their mouth. So they go like this. Mm. I think I was doing that a lot growing up. I thought it was perfectly normal. If I had only known the folly of my ways, but- Hey, you know. listen, 
You're still a handsome man. Don't worry about that. Um, in terms of kids then, what would yeah. you do then uh, if you were a parent of a three-year-old or a four-year-old who was like that a lot of the time? You know, I wouldn't be suggesting, you know, going to tape your child's mouth at night. This stuff is also absolutely blowing up right now. And it's so great to see kids breathing should be checked out within three months by six months at one year at a year and a half. If your kid is snoring, if your infant is snoring or suffering from sleep apnea, that is going to cause so many downstream health issues, very serious developmental issues. This is all scientifically proven. So the key is you do other checkups for your kid, right? How are they digesting food? What's their body weight? Why isn't anyone looking at their breathing and how healthily they're breathing? Sleep apnea in kids is a huge problem. It's directly linked to attention deficit hyperactivity, Mm. directly linked, okay? When the snoring and sleep apnea go away, when that is fixed, the majority of kids no longer have ADHD. And still kids are given this cocktail of pharmaceutical drugs to keep them awake during the day instead of looking at their breathing. So Again, I sound like I'm on a bit of a soapbox here, but I heard this from researchers at Stanford, at Harvard, at top universities who said the science is there and still people aren't looking at breathing. So I would have your kid checked out by a breathing expert, not a pulmonologist who's going to listen to their lungs and say, oh, you seem to be breathing well, at breathing habits, myofunctional therapy terrible name they need a real ad street brand expert to go in there and clean that one up they're great that's what they do they retrain kids into proper oral posture and so many of their methods are amazing they need to be more deeply researched but what doesn't need to be more deeply researched is breathing health and infants right out of the gate yeah i popped my head around so we've got a six-year-old and she's often on her back mouth open And I remember Patrick saying it to me a couple of years ago and I was like, I'm on it, you know, I'm going to crack down and you've re-inspired me. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to have a talk with my better half as soon as I get off this call and insist we put a plan of action into place. Now, listen, final thing, James, you've been very generous with your time. You spoke about putting the pieces together and I think with breath, you've done it so beautifully and it's no surprise that it's been such a juggernaut of a success. It's a romp. It's funny in place. You've got Star Wars references in there. You've got the whole shebang. But as well, it's really useful in terms of the information. And and like I said, I think the fact that you're a science journalist and you're coming at it with that skeptical vantage point adds such a weight of believability, if you want to put it that way, you know. So, So I do completely doff my cap to you. But I just want to ask one final thing. Quick recap. So we've got the nose. We've got the over breathing. We've got the exercise. We've got the kids. We've got the chewing, all right? Okay. Those are the five basic pillars, right? I just want to ask you to almost come full circle back to when you're in that Victorian house and you were sweating like nobody's business and floating through the world for the next week or whatever it was. Now, I've done a few of these things, connected breath work, and I got hysterics. I was just laughing, you know, like a madman, one of those ones, like no reason, just laughing like a madman, person over there crying her eyes out, other people like genuinely quite traumatized. (laughs) I mean, the full gamut of reactions to this stuff. And then I've got a book here 
It's called Holotropic Breathwork by the man himself, Stanislav Groff, uh, forward by Jack Cornfield. Anything that gets a forward by Jack Cornfield. I mean, that's the real deal, right? So it's not just about health on that level. You can go to the other extreme, can't you, of dipping into your subconscious, I don't know, traumas, that kind of thing. Breath can be used in that way as well. It sounded like it was for you in that Victorian house. I know it was for me when I was laughing like a madman. There's a lot of talk about this. It can be used to release stuff from us as well. So what's your take on that? And you've done Holotropic. What's it like? I'm dead keen. Absolutely. I've, I, I did it all, uh, you know, in, in <laughs> pursuit of research. And it was fun. It was interesting. It did not affect me as deeply as other practices have. I think mostly because I was very apprehensive and skeptical of the scene. I said, how much of this is the scene that has been set here and how much of it is caused by this breathing pattern? And from what I saw, people were transmogrifying into different animals. They were going back in time, venturing through the spectral universe with their minds and i'd look over at them and they were just sitting there going so i said hmm how much of this is psychosomatic and i did a deep dive into what actually happens to the brain when we overbreathe for such a long amount of time so holotropic breath work is extreme hyperventilation for three hours in a situation in which you're blasted with extremely loud music something weird is going to happen. People. And it does. It does not disappoint. But what's really happening to our bodies and brains? Uh, the fact is, there just have not been studies looking at fMRI, looking at EEG into extended states of hyperventilation. What we do know is when you overbreathe for that long, you are inhibiting blood flow to the brain, which can trigger the feeling that you're dying. About 40% of the blood flow can be shut off at states of extreme hyperventilation. You do that for a few hours, your body is going to be so confused. It's going to think that it is passing on. So it's going to fill you up with all these self-produced opioids. It's going to fill yeah. you up with oxytocin. It's going to fill you up with all these dopamine and feel good hormones and that's yeah. that's fantastic but you know without having the the science of what is actually happening it's hard to tell and i i love that there's still a mystery to this we don't know everything and i've actually been working with some researchers at johns hopkins university is a very well-known medical institution here in the u.s and i'm going to be going out there in a couple of months and I said, sign me up. I'll, I'll do whatever. I'll do this in any sort of machine that you think would give you some interesting data. So going to do this because I'm curious and I want to see what happens. The Hunter S. Thompson of uh, Breathwork. That's yeah, job. absolutely. Why, why not? <laughs> you know, I'm, I was tired of saying we don't know enough, but there's no money to do this kind of research, which is why I think it's exciting now that there's enough interest that it's starting to provide more opportunities for researchers to do it. But the short version is we know a lot of what happens in these states of breath work, but we don't know everything. And it's that bit that we don't know intrigues me to want to explore more of these subjects and see what else I can dig up. 
I'll tell you what, that's a cliffhanger. I can't wait to hear what you come back with. I'm sure it'll be absolutely fascinating. So uh, listen, James, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You're a charming man, enjoyable to talk to as, as you are to read. You know, Breath is a fantastic book full of really useful information, but a fantastic read as well. So I really do, you know, like so many other people, completely doff my cap to you. It's a blooming triumph. And it's just been lovely talking to you. So thank you so much in, for coming on Don't Tell Me The Score. Anywhere you want to point people or anything, you, the stage is yours for a bit of self-promo, James. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on here. I, I really appreciate it. I've done quite a few of these. I've been talking about this stuff for a year, but as you can see, I don't know when that moment is where I'm going to get sick of talking about this, but it hasn't happened yet. It helps when the person on the other end both has read the book, which is kind of rare, and uh, is, is also uh, has felt these different breathing things happen in their own bodies and mind and the effects of that. So I'm on and I'm trying to get better at this Instagram thing. Uh, Mr. James Nestor is my handle. All of the scientific references for all the stuff we've been talking about free on the website. The publisher allowed me yeah. to have it there. I hope Gosh, you guys yeah. There's a lot there, right? I had a quick look. There is a lot of blooming references there. There's the video. People didn't believe this stuff. They said, oh, this can't be real. Look at the video. Look at the scientific study. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. that's in the book as well. So th uh, there it is. Oh, well, listen, I can't wait to the follow-up where we go into the deep. Okay, what is the nature of all sorts of reality and all this kind of stuff? The deep dive into the more out there stuff i think that'll be uh, brilliant and actually right back to your first book right anyway i'm gonna come it. back and learn that taping your eyes is really going to transform your health so get ready people <laughs> that'd be good I'm that'd be good that, sort, sort your eyesight out by taping your eyes at night that would be fantastic anyway listen james it has been a real pleasure huge fan of your work i'm so pleased that i got you on so just thanks very much it's, it's been great thank you Thank you for listening to this week's episode with James Nestor. I thoroughly enjoyed our chat. And if you have any questions about the subjects or techniques raised, please do get in touch. And I'll be posting videos about, for example, mouth taping on my Instagram. So you can find me at Simon Mundy. A small request, if you could share this episode with anyone who might enjoy it, please do. And if you could spread the word about Don't Turn With The Score, it would make a big difference. A reminder two that you can sign up for my newsletter at simonmundy.com that's it for this week thanks again for listening i do really appreciate it and i hope you'll join me again next time on don't tell me the score planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.